This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. Well, we are so glad that you tuned in today to another episode of the Plucked Chicken Podcast. We're going to do something a little bit different than what we normally do. We are going to start out with Pastor Bruss's sermon that was delivered right here at St. John's just yesterday. That would have been August 11th. And after listening to his sermon, I think it's going to set us up nicely to where Pastor Bruss and I want to go. So wolves arising in the very midst of the flock that was bought by the blood of Christ and prophets. You can think about today's pastors, prophets called by God himself to speak the truth of God himself, teaching and preaching falsehood in his name. All these readings seem so dark and so sinister. Wolves disguised in sheep's clothing. You saw it on your bulletin cover. And it seems that way because it is. This is the teaching of the Lord Jesus. It's nothing for us to sneeze at and hardly anything for us to snooze through because wolves, they're not just unpleasant animals they destroy. And false prophets, they're not just nice guys who happen to have it wrong. They pave the road to hell. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Now look, I'm sure even though you guys are Lutherans and you've been steeped in this stuff all of your life, I know that living in contemporary society, all of this stuff sounds really extreme. But in answer to that... Even the Lord Jesus himself carries it one step further. You and I, we want to see the world in shades of gray. We want to be able to find the good, the bad, and the ugly in in everything. And oftentimes it works. you got a great neighbor who's always willing to lend you his garden tools. That's good. Unfortunately, he never shovels the city sidewalk in front of his house. That's bad. And his house, boy, you should see it. He never paints it. It hasn't been painted for 15 years. It's ugly. And so there are problems there. But on the whole, we say he's a good guy. Fellow redeemed, this is not how it works in Christ's church. When it comes to the church's stock in trade, the teaching and preaching of God's word, there are no shades of gray. There are either diseased trees or good ones. There are either wolves or sheep. There are either prophets who lie in God's name or prophets who proclaim the whole counsel of God. That's what the Lord expected of St. Paul, the whole counsel of God. And that in turn is what Paul expected of the Ephesian elders when he's standing there on the beach taking leave of them. And even today... That's what you, the church, must expect of your pastors, the whole counsel of God. Yes, the wondrous salvation that's in Jesus Christ alone, but also the full force of God's law to tell sinners that they have a problem and a far bigger one than they can deal with. Yes, the righteousness of faith in Jesus Christ alone, to be sure, but also the godly life that must follow it by being a child of God. Yes, the bloody cross one salvation in Jesus' name alone, but also how the Lord does and wants to give you that salvation in his word and baptism and the meal. Christ's triumph over evil on his holy cross, yes, 
but also the cross of suffering that must be laid upon Christ's followers. The glorious day of resurrection, yes, when the Lord Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead, but also the six-day creation in which the Lord made the very bodies that he's going to raise up from the dead on the last day. The real presence of the life-giving body and blood of Jesus under the bread and wine, yes, but also closed communion. The forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, to be sure, but also forgive as you have been forgiven. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. The whole counsel of God. Not a thing missing, not a thing to be trifled with, not a thing that is glossed over. Because here, when we're talking about the whole counsel of God, there's no almost or in the ballpark. It's not like hand grenades and horseshoes that close enough gets the job done. It either is or isn't the whole counsel of God. That's what the Lord expects of his pastors. Not their opinions or their dreams like we heard about the prophets in Jeremiah's day. Not deceitful messages disguised as the bleating of sheep. Not rotten fruit, but the whole counsel of God. St. Peter puts it this way. If somebody speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. And so that's why Jesus can speak in such binary terms. Pastors in Christ's church either speak what the Lord has revealed or they lie. They either speak what the Lord has revealed or they lie. There's no in-between. They're either sheep or they're wolves. No in-between. And they're either diseased trees or good trees. There is no middle ground. All of this is extremely scary, and believe me, for us pastors, it's extremely scary because we don't want to be diseased trees or wolves wrapped up in sheep's clothing. But think about it. People who go out in the name of the Lord and prophesy falsehood, wolves arising from the very midst of the sheep whom the Lord himself has blot with the blood of his own dear son and trees that are either good or bad. How can you tell? Praise and thanks be to God, he's given you taste buds. You bite into a crab apple, and you know you've got to spit it out right away, otherwise you're going to have a tummy ache. It's sour. And if you eat the rest, it's going to be a long 24 hours. But bite into a honey crisp, and it's sweet, eat the rest of it, and it's a wholesome snack. That's just what Jesus is saying. It's possible to look through all of the subterfuge and masks and disguises that false teachers wear, and this is how you can do it, you pay attention to their fruit, to their teaching. And this means that you, you the Christians bought by the blood of Christ, have not only the right, but even the duty to judge what you hear from the pulpit and in your Bible studies. Now look, I... Suppose you hear that and you feel a little bit daunted. You think, who am I to judge the teaching of my pastor or any pastor? Most pastors have four years of formal theological education, and many Missouri Synod pastors have eight years of formal theological education and then some. So how am I to stand in judgment over the teaching of my pastor? Am I supposed to use my catechism? 
answer is yes. As soon as you've asked that question, you got the answer. Use your catechism. This is how it works. I brought mine today. I've got five good examples for you. This just scratches the surface. You walk into your average mainline church and you hear that God might have been involved in the creation of the world, but it was through this long billions of years process of evolution. And you remember your catechism where it says, I believe that God has made me and all creatures. And then you go home and you look in the back and you find the question, how did God create everything? And you find the answer, God created by his word. He spoke creation into existence, forming and filling it in six days. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light. You stop in at the Methodist church, just like the one down the road from where Chris and I live, and you hear from the pulpit that it's not only okay for homosexuals to be joined in marriage, but you're a homophobe if, if you disagree. And you remember your catechism and the sixth commandment. Let's go there. What does the sixth commandment say? You shall not commit adultery. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do. And here's the kicker, husband and wife love and honor each other. Are you at the funeral of your Baptist buddy? The pastor says that even though your buddy was raised in the church, he really didn't become a Christian until he got done with college, got married, and had a baby, and made his decision to follow Jesus. And you recall the words of the explanation of the third article of the creed, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. And then that same pastor goes on and talks about your buddy's second baptism when he was 35 years old. The first didn't do any good for him, obviously. And you remember your catechism. What benefits does baptism give? You look it right up and you find the, the answer. It says that baptism... Works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this, as the words and promises of God declare. Everything that your buddy needed for this life and for the next, he got when he was baptized the first time around, even when he was a baby. Or you go to one of our big box churches here in Topeka on a Sunday when they actually have communion. And the pastor up in front is careful to explain so that he doesn't offend anybody, that it really doesn't matter what you believe about what he's holding in his hand. But the bread and wine actually just do represent Christ's body and blood, he says. You can actually listen to this sermon online at Fellowship Bible Church. And you remember your catechism. What is the sacrament of the altar? It is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and drink. Where is this written? Our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and he said, this is my body. And he also took a cup and said, this is the New Testament in my blood. Or you visit your Missouri Synod cousins and the communion card announces that any baptized Christian may receive the sacrament. And you remember the question in your catechism, who should not be given the sacrament? The answer, the sacrament should not be given to the following, those Christians of a different confession of faith, 
since the Lord's Supper is a testimony to our unity in faith and doctrine. Romans 16, 17. I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught and avoid them. Isn't this amazing? This little book has all that great stuff in it. And that's just a handful of examples. But look at what a job your catechism can do, what a tool it is to see the black and white in a world where people would love to see everything as gray. That's exactly why you've got a catechism. It's exactly why we spend three years teaching the children the catechism in catechesis. That's exactly why this thing is a core textbook at Topeka Lutheran School. It's so that you, the faithful, can refine your taste buds and taste the fruit of the teaching of your pastors and judge it. But when it's not the whole counsel of God, when what you're hearing from the pulpit or the lectern diverges from the pattern of sound words, when it's not the doctrine that you have learned, what are you supposed to do? Well, I would call upon the catechumens to help me out answering this one, but I don't want to embarrass them today. I'll explain something to you. The only time they get to use a four-letter word in catechesis is an answer to this question. What do you do when you encounter false teaching? And the answer is, run like hell. Get away from it. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, St. Paul says. False teaching is just like cancer. It starts small, but it spreads through the whole body. It was Baal worship and the Baal worship of just one woman, Queen Jezebel, that in a short period left only 7,000 faithful in all of Israel. You see, this matters. It matters because God said so, and it matters because God has revealed his whole counsel for one reason and one reason only. It's for your salvation. So baptism, fellow redeemed, actually does save you. It's not just a symbol of joining Team Jesus. That's what God says. Don't fall for anybody who says differently. And there is but one baptism. Not two or three or as many as you think you need. Only one. That's what God says. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Don't fall for whatever anybody else tells you. And the bread and the sacrament is Christ's body. The wine is his blood. Not just a symbol, but the very means by which he wants to give you the forgiveness of all of your sins. That's what Jesus himself says. He says, my body, my blood, for you, for the forgiveness of sins. Leave the minute that you hear the word represents. Any marriage that's not between a man and a woman is no marriage at all. In fact, it's an unrepentant sin, placing the person participating in it outside of the body of Christ. That's what God says. Don't fall for the new morality invented by the world and swallowed by the sophisticated church. It is rotten apples. And it's true. Jesus alone does save you. Not Jesus plus your decision. Not Jesus plus the holy life that follows. Just Jesus and faith in him alone. This is what St. Paul says. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the works of the law. The righteousness of God through faith 
in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Don't listen to anybody, anybody who quibbles with it. And deciding for God, fulfilling the first commandment out of your own powers, not only is that a work of the law, it's impossible because you were dead in your trespasses and sins and anyone who tells you otherwise is a wolf in sheep's clothing and wolves eat sheep. You see, this stuff matters. And if it's not enough for you that God tells you it matters, then certainly you can see how your own salvation hangs in the balance. So flee the false prophets. Run like hell. But when you run, don't just run away. Actually run to. Run to the voice of your good shepherd. And you will because Jesus promises that the sheep know his voice. When you're tempted by what the radio preachers tell you, that your life is such a train wreck that you need to get baptized again and make another decision for Jesus to get back on his team, remember the voice of your good shepherd who has said to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The good shepherd is already on your team. And when you're tempted to take communion with your cousins at their open rail, remember the good food that you've eaten. and Spit out the bad. And when the world, even the sophisticated church, mocks your belief in the six-day creation, remember that the good shepherd who is powerful enough to create Adam from the dust of the earth will stand over your grave on the last day and with his same powerful word, call out your name and raise up your body to everlasting life. And when the world and the sophisticated church laugh at your belief in traditional marriage, listen to the voice of the good shepherd who wants nothing for his entire creation but the best and who says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his husband? No, his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. That is God's counsel. That's what God would have you believe and do. For you, his beloved creature and child, this is nothing but good and blessing. Straight from the mouth of the good shepherd, of the good shepherd who has already laid down his life for you, the flock. See, that's how much God loves you. He didn't spare his own son. Instead, he gave him up for us all. That's how his heart is toward you. And there's not one thing, not one word that falls from the lips of the good shepherd, but that it is blessing and life and wholesomeness and salvation and goodness and everlasting life. But anyone or anything who perverts that word, anyone or anything who gives you half the story, fellow redeemed, that is a false prophet. It's a wolf in sheep's clothing, it is a diseased tree. Don't eat that fruit. The fruit is rotten. This is sinister. This is dark. It does bring death, and it does destroy the church of God. So listen to what God said in Jeremiah. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who speak visions of their own minds who prophesy in the Lord's name, who think to make the Lord's people forget his name. That's what they're doing. Instead, judge what you hear. Remember your catechism and use it. This thing should be beat up at your house. That's why you've got it. 
It's your right and it's your duty to do so. And when you see a paw where there should be a hoof, run. And when the fruit is bad, spit it out and leave. And instead, listen to the voice of the good shepherd who laid down his life for you. Amen. Amen to that. And so, Pastor Bruss, what we want to do is, while you're here, especially having set the table so wonderfully for us here with this sermon, uh, what we want to do is give a listen to, I don't know, just a smattering of other guys and, and to, to really examine the fruit and uh, to see if there is a... How'd you say it at the end there? If, if it's a hoof or a paw or... Right, yeah. right. If it's a hoof or if it's a paw... And so we've been talking about living the 10-10 life, John chapter 10, verse 10, which is not only the theme for this weekend, it's actually the theme for our church. Before we ever had the name LifePoint, we had this verse kind of anchored deep in our heart. Now here's what John chapter 10, verse 10 says. It says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I want everybody to say those three words, steal, kill, and destroy with me together. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. One more time, to steal and kill and destroy. That is the thief's goal. This is kind of like a bad news, good news scenario. Jesus is saying, I got some bad news. There's a thief in this life and he only comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come, here's the good news, that they may have life and have it to the full. Somebody say to the full. So when we were dreaming of LifePoint Church, we were dreaming of a church that would point people to life in Jesus. People don't need to be beat down. Life is hard enough. Turn on the TV, look at the headlines, check your news feed, and you're gonna discover that, man, the thief is good at what he does. There's a lot of us that feel as if Maybe our passion or our potential, our hopes, our dreams, they've been stolen, they've been killed, they've been destroyed. Jesus says that is true. There's an enemy in this life who stands in opposition to you because he opposes God, he opposes all that God stands for, but you don't have to be a victim to this thief. Says he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, this word life that Jesus is talking about is not, it's not just like being alive, okay? Because it's quite possible to be alive but never truly live your life, never truly be full of life. This word life comes from the word zoe, zoe, Z-O-E. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. Zoe, what does zoe mean? Zoe means life that is real, it's genuine, It's an active life, a vigorous life, a life that's devoted to God, life that comes from him. You are living the Zoe life when you're living your purpose, when you're tapping into the potential that God has put inside of you. You understand there's a calling for your life. That's what your Zoe life looks like. Everybody lives, but not everybody is fully alive. And so the goal is that we would experience the life that God has for us. And I love that it says not just life, but life to the full. Everything's better full, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Life is better full. I don't like half full. I don't want half full. So raise your hand real quick if you like donuts. Anybody like donuts? Who likes a donut? Like, If you don't like donuts, what's wrong with you, okay? All right. Now this pastor is going to tell these full stories. It's amazing to me how every time John 10.10 is used in a sermon, the enemy 
who comes to do all this is always the devil, and life to the full is also put in this earthy realm. Yes, right, this earthly realm, and, and it's mapped over, or maybe what they do is they map pop psychology over it, right? I mean, did we hear that with, the uh, you know, you have a purpose in life and, and all this sort of stuff. This is purely pop psychology. And what's interesting is that he, he fails to, uh, sort of in halting the text at this point, he fails to go on and understand exactly what Jesus is talking about as the good shepherd in giving life. He gives life by laying his own life down to save the sheep, and then he takes it up again. That taking it up again is the beginning of the eschatological realization of the fullness of life that we have in Christ, which is specifically this, that in Christ the bonds of death over all of humanity have been broken because he bears the sins of the world. So all the dead will rise, but on the last day, uh, as Luther says, uh, he will give to me and all believers in Christ everlasting life. That's what Jesus is talking about in John 10.10, 10, not um, sort of maximizing your potential. <laughs> it, it, it's sad. It's really sad. The, the thing that hangs over the head of everybody is their death. And, and our death drives us to mine this life for everything it's got. And so what he's actually doing is he's sending us back, and I'm just going to use a term here, but he's sending us back into death thinking by telling us to find all the good that Jesus has in this life and not the next. That is the way, again, that John 10.10 is interpreted in so many churches they don't think of when Jesus says, I came that you may have life, that he's talking about eternal life. Right. So how do they miss that? To me, that, that's just, that's really mystifying. Um, and, and how do they miss the fact that uh, he's not talking about the devil? That he's talking about false teachers as being the enemy. How do you miss that? Because well, the entire chapter before that, all of nine... Is saying that these false teachers, they are the ones who are trying to kill, steal, and destroy. Right. They're the ones who are creeping in into the fold. And that's that's another notable thing, isn't it? Jesus here isn't talking about the external threats to the Christian church. He's talking about those that emerge inside the rock wall where the sheep are kept in their pen. And you're, you're absolutely right. These guys who sort of throw themselves over the wall rather than walk into the gate, these are the false teachers. And what's ironic is this guy is a false teacher. It, it is because he's doing exactly what these guys do. They, they, what they do is they sell, excuse me, again, this expression, death thinking, uh, trying to mine this life for everything it's got. Uh, what a, what a sorry, what a sorry thing this is. And, and it, and it just destroys all of the eschatological promises that we have in the scriptures. Well, and it also throws, it can throw one into despair thinking, I thought that I had life. Obviously I, pastor just said I can be, what do he say? I can be alive, but still dead or something like this. Yeah. Like it, I still have to go looking and searching. So it also fails to get at the hiddenness of the Christian life, that the, the Christian life is hidden under weakness, 
Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Well, it's it's throughout Paul's letters. Uh, Jesus talks about it uh, when he talks about uh, the violence seizing the kingdom of God. And, you know, you got John the Baptist there in prison in not long of a time to have his head chopped off by Herod. Uh, and uh, the disciples are saying, what in the world is going on here, Jesus? Is Is this really what we're supposed to be hoping for? And the answer is yes. Exactly. All right, he's going to keep on going here. Now, we know that the ultimate thief in life is Satan. Satan hates God and hates everything that that God believes in, everything that God cares about. You need to know that God cares about you. He created you on purpose. You're not an accident. You're not a mistake. And because there's purpose on your life, Satan hates that. So he's going to do everything he can to keep you from a life with God. And if you know God is your Lord and Savior, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior and you are forgiven... You need to know Satan can't mess with your eternity, so he's gonna try to mess with your reality. And so a lot of us have fallen victim to this thief. Okay, I wanted to include that little clip there because I really have no problem with what he's saying. I mean, at least he is acknowledging that there is a devil. At least he is acknowledging that that devil wants to drag all of our souls to hell. So kudos. He, yeah, he hit it on the head here, I think. Now, it's interesting. If you have the time, I don't have time to get into it, but John chapter 10, it's pretty interesting. Jesus starts talking about sheep and shepherds, and he says, I'm the good shepherd, and he's, he's challenging the religious leaders of the day, these Pharisees, and he's saying, you're like a hired hand. You see, a good shepherd cares about their sheep, but hired hands, they run off when trouble strikes. When thieves creep in, the hired hands run away, and he begins to challenge them, literally calling them thieves. Okay, he's starting to, uh, what, interpret the text correctly, but did you hear that little phrase? I don't have time to talk about that. Right, he doesn't want to go down that road. There must be something... well, it'll be interesting to see where he goes. Yeah, but but what we haven't done, we haven't listened to the entire sermon. Again, I've learned a lot about this pastor listening to this sermon. We don't have time to analyze the biblical text and present it correctly, but boy, do we got time to tell about when we were on the cruise ship and talk about, oh, I don't even remember now, the other things that he talked about, but learned a lot about him. You know what you should do for this podcast? You should link so that people could just hear this. Uh, just put a link in there to this sermon so that if sure. they to listen to the whole thing, they could. I, I think they would probably prefer to cut themselves with a, <laughs> a dull, rusty knife. But Join uh, the prophets of Baal. <laughs> but I'll do it. I want to talk for a few moments about thieves that come in to steal, kill, and destroy, and they keep us from living that zoe, that life to the full. And so I want you to write this down. I'm going to give you four of them. The first is this, busyness. Busyness is the thief of rest. <laughs> your uh, Pastor Bryce, your mouth, it's, uh, it's a gape. You have got to be kidding me. This, this is like lying on your, on your therapist's couch, <laughs> exhausted, <laughs> and your therapist has a good piece of advice for you. <laughs> Don't sign the kids up for so many uh, sports programs that you can actually get some rest. Well, and have that Zoe life. That Zoe life. That is... 
and it fails to uh, th this is just so um departed from the biblical biblical language right christ is our sabbath rest he is the new sabbath and um i mean he it's like he's mi mixing categories um or not even paying attention to the biblical categories busyness it gets worse okay can't wait here's number two write this down worry is the thief of peace did you write that down pastor Brown? <laughs> i did not write it down but certainly jesus i don't have to write it down because matthew already did uh in the sermon on the mount didn't he uh but that's not what jesus is talking about here he's talking about the false teaching um and um yeah talk about something that uh disrupts your peace would be false teaching would be exactly what this guy's doing exactly yeah, if I get more rest, if I stop worrying, then everything's going to be good between me and God. Uh. Well, we've still got two more. Yay! Here's number three. Comparison is the thief of joy. <laughs> what? You have more hair than I do. <laughs> My joy is gone. <laughs> well, you know, as he, you know, he says these, you know, seemingly profound statements and encouraging the peeps there to to write it down in their little their little journal uh, but after each one you know he's going to expound and tell yet another story of comparison or oh, so each worry one these, i see right okay, it's not just yeah. you know he's not just throwing these things out staccato he explains them all with an entertaining story sure uh so the the chief a wonderful chief text for comparison purposes to show about comparison would be the pharisee and the and the publican interestingly both are comparing themselves and on the positive side right the one that that appears to have all the joy and thinks he's got all the joy is the pharisee he can thank god for the wonderful man that the lord has made him conversely the publican is there with his eyes cast to the ground and uh, all he can say is hilasthati propitiate yourself on my behalf he has no joy and yet he has the joy of the forgiveness of sins. Jesus asks at the end of that parable, which of these men goes home forgiven? And it's clear that it's the, that it's the publican. So he, he's missing what Christian joy is. You mean the forgiveness of sins? Correct. And so there's one more. Here's the, the fourth and final. Entitlement is the thief of gratitude. You know, I could allegorize these thieves and make up all kinds of stuff all day long. <laughs> you sure could. This is, I, I can't remember the coinage that, uh, I think it's Christian Smith, that sociologist who's at Notre Dame, uh, came up with to describe contemporary American Christianity. But uh, is it therapeutic moralistic deism or is it moralistic therapeutic deism? I can't remember which of those two terms goes first. But this is nothing else but vapid, therapeutic, moralistic deism. And it's no wonder that America is becoming less and less Christian every single day because these are precepts, I'm sorry, that you can get from the Declaration of Independence and not from, you don't need a pastor to tell you about this. All right, so we've heard the four thieves. I mean, it started out as Satan is the thief, and then he even touched on the truth that false teachers are the thief. But now we've allegorized the thieves, uh, but we can't leave the folks hanging. We got to give them some application, and that's what the pastor is going to do next. 
How do we safeguard against these thieves? I'm gonna give you four incredibly practical things to do. Here's number one, right fast. Number one, shut the door. Shut the door. The Bible says the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. If you knew there was a, a, a lion roaming the neighborhood, if there was a thief roaming the neighborhood, how many of you would leave the door open at night? Step two, how do I begin to experience this life to the full? Eat, sleep, exercise. They will change your life. Number three way to live life to the full is simply this, time with friends. The final one is this, fill up frequently. Fill up frequently. So many people treat church like a gas station. We show up on Sunday, we fill up, we're like, whew, man, that was good. Worship was fire. That message was amazing. I got an application. This is so good. And then we go through the week, and by Wednesday, we're like, oh, my word. It's been a rough week. Is it only Wednesday? Hump day. <laughs> Barely gonna get it. You know, Friday, we're like, oh, it's the weekend. And then some of us, we, we just burn all of our gas Friday and Saturday. And we come into Sunday, we're like, oh, I need a word. I need to worship. I'm so run down. I'm so depleted. I sure hope pastor's got a good word today. And you're waiting on somebody else to fill your tank. Why can't you fill that every day? All right. So that's the application. Review time here. These uh, <laughs> We're going to shut the door, right? So we're, uh, I think he talks about uh, cell phones at that point, uh, shutting the door. Shutting the door, okay. And then uh, what was it? Uh, your favorite, uh, eat, sleep, and exercise. This is how the Lord has allowed us to have this Zoe life. It'll change your life. And he tells wonderful stories about how he exercises so is this and what like he a, eats. A GNC infomercial? You got yeah. it. And then we're going to spend time with friends, which I always think about, I don't know, beer commercials, you know, <laughs> we're on the fire with these, with these beautiful, the beautiful women. The fire doesn't have any smoke, you know, it's just <laughs> never blows in your face. <laughs> in other words, it's, it's not my backyard. <laughs> no, it's on the beach. On the beach. <laughs> and so, uh, and then we've uh, got to have um, a quiet time personal devotions. I mean, this is this is what's going to keep these sneaky thieves, which is the title of this quote-unquote sermon, uh, this will keep those sneaky thieves at bay. At bay. So the, the, the only one that strikes me as, as being possibly relevant at all is devotions. Yeah, the final one. Yep. Uh, but these other ones are, are just, uh, you didn't record this, but he got to number two, and I think I <laughs> let out a yelp. Uh, uh, and I don't know whether to, 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 to sigh or cry or, or what, but uh, again, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Nothing more, nothing less. Okay, so he's going to land the plane here and just take a listen at how he does that. So here's what I want to ask as I close. Simply this, what's God saying to you right now? Oh, my. Would, so wouldn't you say the answer to that question based upon your sermon is run like hell? Exactly. <laughs> That's right. God is saying get out of there. But, but isn't this an interesting way that he's put this? What is God saying to you right now? There's a secondary message here, a message that's divorced from the preacher's words. It may be prompted by the preacher's words, but this is this action of the Spirit apart from the Word of God, which is sheer and pure enthusiasm. Well, he's not done. Oh, my. 
Oh my. Why'd he bring you here today? This youth weekend, you're not even a youth, but you're here. I think that the, one of these thieves has probably been stealing from you. And maybe today God has put his finger on and said, you, you gotta get rid of this. Here's a safeguard. Here's something you need to do. So I'm gonna take about 15 seconds and we're gonna pray. And I just want you for a moment to say, God, what are you saying to me? Can we do that? Just close your, close your eyes, bow your heads, 15 seconds. God, what are you saying to me right now? I'm, spe I'm, I'm, I'm speechless. Why don't you go in your corner and think about what I've said, Johnny? I've had that speech before. I was eight years old. <laughs> and don't come out of that corner. Until you can tell me what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> this is horror. This is, this is nothing. Wouldn't you say? I'm, so it. And in being nothing, it is it is extremely dangerous. It's like it's like someone saying uh, someone hanging up a shingle, saying, "Here we've got uh, chemotherapy for the following kinds of cancer," and what they're giving you in their syringes is water. And that's exactly what's going on here. And so you think you're getting better, but you're actually the cancer is just is just taking off and consuming your whole body that's exactly what this what this is this is not christ's solution to the human problem the human problem is sin death and hell he has done nothing to help people deal with this and so sleep and exercise is not going to and shutting the door and shutting the door that's not going to help me in these these enemies of sin, death, and hell? No. Are you still going to sin with the door shut? You bet. Are you, you can exercise all you want. Are you still going to die? What's the other one? Rest. No. Rest? Rest. 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 Yeah, well. You, rest in peace or rest in hell. Exactly. This is, this is really, um, shockingly bad stuff. Well, we're going to switch over to another pastor, and uh, just a real quick clip. He is encouraging his people as well on the same thing that we heard here with this pastor about a devotion life, and let's, uh, let's uh, hear what he has to say. So, with that said, we need a commitment to a daily quiet time with God. I want to take just the last few minutes of my message here today and, and talk to you about why you need a quiet time with God. I'm not going to tell you how. Uh, when you take the class this, this fall on GROW, then we'll teach you how. Today, I just want to motivate you to want to do it. And so here are three reasons why you should spend time with God. And one is devotion. Devotion. We spend time with God because He loved us. He has demonstrated His love towards us. I spend time with God because He has saved me, set me free, changed my life, and I am devoted to Him. I am loyal to Him. I want to give back to Him. I want to build my relationship with Him. The Bible says in 1 John 4.10, it says, This is love. Not that we loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son as atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so what this is saying is that before I loved Him, 
he loved me. While I was still a, a knucklehead, he sent his son to die for my sins. While I was still lost and desperate and had no hope, he sent his son to love me and change my life. He made the first move towards us. And because of that, I received that and he changed my life. And I want to give back. I want to be devoted to the one who has changed my life. We're devoted to God because he changed our life. Amen? Second is daily strength. We need daily strength from God. Now, I'm getting ready to read a verse to you that's so depressing. Awesome. You're going to love this. It's truth, though, but I'm just warning you up front. You're not going to love this verse. So let's read it. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Have you ever experienced each day having challenges of its own and you don't need to worry about tomorrow? The problems will be there tomorrow. You might as well sit in today and figure today's out. Each day has its challenges. Here's what I think. Because we face new challenges every day, we can't depend on yesterday's encounter with God for today's strength. We need strength for the new challenges. And every day when we spend time with God, He prepares us for anything and everything that might come our way. Jesus, when He was teaching His disciples about prayer and about our relationship with our Heavenly Father, and He taught us how to pray, and He said in Matthew 6, 11, He said, Give us today our daily bread. He was not talking about delicious breadsticks from Olive Garden. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is the bread of life. And therefore, he's talking about that when we spend time with him daily, he nourishes us daily. We need him daily, every day, for every challenge. We need strength that comes only from him. Well, that's great. He's just spiritualized the fourth petition right, right away. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. So Jesus wasn't talking about bread. Daily bread. No. No. Nope. Uh, and the problem, of course, here is that the Lord's Prayer occurs in the Synoptic Gospels where the language is different. And the Bread of Life discourse occurs in John. There Jesus is the Bread of Life. There's no question about it. But uh, what Jesus is talking about in the, in the Sermon on the Mount uh, with, the, with prayer is, is an entirely different thing. And in fact, it follows on the heels of his instruction to the uh, disciples, uh, specifically about their worries over, you know, what shall we eat, what shall we wear, so on and so forth. But everybody agreed. I mean, after he spiritualized the uh, Jesus being the bread of life, referring to him meeting you every day in your devotions, uh, I mean, that was a, an applause line. I mean, everybody uh, enjoyed that. They liked it, yeah. And, you know, this is what's fascinating to me and sad we're not against one having a devotional life. Absolutely not. But you hear that obligation, uh, that first portion there, that, that it really is, well, because Jesus did this for me, now I'm obligated now to... You know, I think about Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who meditates upon the law of the Lord, you know, and he's like a tree planted by the streams of water, and everything he does prospers. It doesn't say anything in there about, 
you know, have your devotion life because Jesus did this for you, doggone it. You need to return the favor. Right. It's using the using the pure gospel really as law. Oh, no doubt. Right. And and that's a that's a very easy ploy to get into. You go to the heart of, of the Christian faith, the death of the Son of God, and and make make the claim, look, Jesus did this for you, what are you gonna do for him? And you turn the propitiation for your sins which is pure gift into the $800 that you get from mom and dad, but now they expect you to come and see them every other weekend. It's, it's really unfortunate. There are other reasons to have devotions, of course. Um, and one of them that he doesn't really encounter or doesn't, doesn't talk about is the fact that daily, uh, what do we need daily? We daily need the forgiveness of sins. Luther talks about this in the explanation of baptism. He says, what does such baptizing with water indicate? It indicates that the old Adam in us should, by daily contrition and repentance, be drowned and die with all sins and evil lusts, and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. This is the action. What he's describing there is the daily action of the law and of the gospel. And this is why Lutheran devotions, at least, Good Lutheran devotions don't simply, and I don't want to denigrate simply meditating on God's word. That's all well and good. But they are an exercise in the Ten Commandments. A, a good daily devotion repeats the Ten Commandments so that we preach to ourselves how we have fallen short of the glory of God. This is the drowning of the old man. And reminding ourselves of God's will. Exactly. And what he wants us to do for the rest of the day. And they include the, uh, of course, the, the Our Father, but uh, certainly the Apostles' Creed. So this is my pickle. I'm going to, I, I have not lived up to the, to the high calling of my baptism. Uh, I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, and yet, this is the kind of God I have. He is the kind of God who gives his son into my flesh to bear my sin. And what bookends that is the morning prayer, and then at the end of the day, the evening prayer, which is very, very similar. However, there's one difference. The morning prayer begins with, keep me from every sin. Right, so that's looking at the Ten Commandments as as my marching orders for the day. Good. And then the end of the evening prayer, the end of the day prayer, it is... Forgive me for where I have sinned. It acknowledges the fact that that in this life, I can't do it. Even the best deeds are stained by wicked impulses and sin. Yeah. See, these are much more encouraging motivators for having devotions rather than uh, spiritualizing Jesus or making it some sort of obligation on my part. Absolutely. And they're more doctrine. It's more doctrinally pure. Uh, and it actually maps over the reality of Christian life uh, much better, don't you think? So would you say this is a hoof or a paw? Smell, well, certainly. It, it smells I, woofy? <laughs> it's certainly, what he's commending is a good thing. This is much, I, honestly, this is much better than the last guy that we listened to who was telling us that the life that we have in Jesus has to do with shutting the door, taking rest, and spending time with friends. Absolutely. So he's better, but... He's using the gospel as law, and that is highly problematic. All right, well, let's uh, turn our attention to another. I call this, this message Step 2 because uh, baptism in water is the next step in our walk with the Lord after we give our lives to Christ. 
after we choose to follow Jesus. It's the public declaration of our faith. And as it said in the announcements this morning, we have baptism coming up on August 10th. And if you've not been baptized since giving your life to Christ, I want today's message to spark something in you. I want you to join us for that. I'm going to walk you through the, you know, the, the, the why, the, the who, the how, uh, all of that, so that you'll know not only the, the significance and the symbolism, but also that you'll know the practical. Like, okay, so I'm going to be baptized. How's this going to work? Man, you over there listening to this sounded like you had some serious stomach cramps. Every statement he made in his opening salvo there was prompting a groan on my part. Giving your life to Christ, getting baptized since you've given your life to Christ. Um, uh, it gets worse. You make all kinds of rules and regulations, but it's really not that. And so that leads us into this, which... which flows right into the, the first reason, why should I get baptized? And it's to follow Jesus' example. To follow Jesus' example. Now, Jesus was not a sinner. Right? Jesus was not a sinner, and yet he was baptized before he began his ministry. When he was, that, that time, when we, we begin reading in the, the New Testament, and we see that, that, that Jesus was baptized. He did this, he humbled himself, by doing this in obedience, in obedience so that he could identify with us and give us an example to follow. So if Jesus, if it's good enough for Jesus, you know what? Thanks for coming. We'll see you next Sunday. We just leave all the rest of it. Just not even like the, like the, the who and the, the, the how of that. Just, just, yeah, if it's good enough for Jesus, just do it to me too. If it's good enough for Jesus, I want it too. Because Jesus came not just to go to the cross. He ended up at the cross, which was paying the price for our, our sin so that we could be saved, we could be set free. But what about those other 33 years? What about those three years of ministry that's significant that we read about uh, of Jesus? It's to be laid out as an example. So we live like Jesus. If we want to be a reflection of who God is, that he sent Jesus to show us what it looks like. Right? Wrong. <laughs> Unbelievable. So nowhere in the scriptures are, are we ever told to baptize because it follows the example of Jesus, number one. And he doesn't understand why Jesus was baptized in the first place. J Jesus says to John, uh, we must fulfill all righteousness. Now, what is he saying there? Uh, what he's saying there is that in baptism, a, a very real transaction occurs. Uh, the sins of the world are washed onto the, onto the back of Jesus Christ, who emerges from the water of baptism and to whom his cousin points and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who bears the sins of the world. Uh, so he becomes the sin bearer, as it were. Just like the scapegoat in the Old Testament. Absolutely. This is how he's undergoing all righteousness. It's the righteousness of God toward us human beings, that he bears our sin. Number two, seriously, the 33 years prior to the moment that he's affixed to the cross is nothing but example? Where, where in the scriptures do we, do we have this? So let's just, let's just sort of run, run through this. It was good enough for Jesus to be born of a carpenter. You should go be born of a carpenter. 
It was good enough for Jesus to be circumcised. If you're not circumcised, you better get circumcised. Well, Pastor Buzz, just to let you know, my father was a carpenter. I know he was, so you got a leg up. <laughs> and speaking of leg up, I am circumcised. <laughs> All right. What else so, you yeah. got? Yeah. <laughs> what else can I? <laughs> so, um. I mean, just go down the road. What? So, so there's no sense, is there, on the part of of this of these preachers that even the very life of Jesus is lived vicariously. He lives his life for us. He fulfills the law on our behalf. There's none of the pro nobis kind of stuff here that is all over scripture and all over certainly Lutheran theology. It gets worse. Oh no. Here's the second reason why I should get baptized as a step of obedience. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. So there's no gift nature <clears throat> in baptism. No gospel. None whatsoever. Uh, so this, this totally uh, brushes Mark sixteen sixteen under the carpet. It completely denies Titus chapter 3, where uh, it says that God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs of eternal life. And the first Peter passage, baptism also now saves us. None of the gift nature. No, no. And so you see in the last pastor, you know, we're using the law to motivate you to have devotions. Now we're using the law again to motivate you to be baptized. And turning baptism, which is gospel, into law. I'm seeing a paw. So it's this public statement. Uh, in the message translation, Mark 16, 16, puts it like this. Then he said, go into the world... Go everywhere and announce the message of God's good news to one and all. It's another account of when Jesus said to, for the disciples, we see in Matthew 28. And this in Mark 16, 16, Jesus is saying, Go everywhere and announce the message of God's good news to one and all. Whoever believes and is baptized is saved. Whoever refuses to believe is damned. It is that public statement of going the next step public statement of going the next step from Mark 16, 16. I'm not sure exactly how he wound up with that being a public statement, right? The Whoever believes and is baptized, and in fact, it's a bad translation, it's will be saved, right? Right. And whoever does not believe will be condemned. Uh, Jesus isn't making the baptism into a public statement there. What he's doing is he's talking about the the gift of the gospel offered and given in baptism, which faith receives. And when that gift is offered and given, but not received in faith, well, there, there, there's condemnation. Well, the massage Bible is always going to <laughs> massage, <laughs> play loose and fast yeah. with the text. Uh, but it doesn't matter. I mean, this guy already, he didn't need to go looking for different translations to say something that he already believes. He already believes that baptism is a public declaration. 
But I was surprised that he went to Mark 16, 16. I was was really surprised by that, number one. And number two, I'm trying to, why, the the massage uh, has to be unique in translating those future tenses, will be saved and will be condemned, as present tenses. And he must be trying to leverage that. The question in his mind is, and that he wants to raise in his hearers' minds, is this, are you saved right now? That's not what Jesus is talking about. But the way this translation reads, so again, he's putting the screws to them. He's saying, are you saved? Yeah, okay, then you better get baptized. And I keep saying this over and over, but um, it gets worse. Here's here's another reason why we should get baptized. It's a symbol of new life. It's that, as I was saying, it's that, Going down, representing the old way, and rising up, representing new life in Christ. We bury that old life, and we rise to walk in this new life. Our entrance into the water during during baptism identifies us with Christ's death on the cross, his burial in the tomb, and his resurrection from the dead. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, in the message translation, uh, again, says, going under the water was a burial of your old life. Coming up out of it was a resurrection. God raising you from the dead as he did Christ. When you were stuck in your old sin-dead life, you were incapable of responding to God. God brought you alive right along with Christ. Think of it. All sins forgiven. The slate wiped clean. That old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. Man, I don't know why somebody's not shouting up in here. Can I posit a reason why people aren't shouting I, up in here? I would love to hear why people aren't shouting this up is, in here. This is my guess. He's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. On one side, baptism is something that we are supposed to do. Basically, he's whipping the crowd into get baptized because Jesus was baptized, and get baptized because Jesus was the example. And now, you know, he's reading something here, a paragraph or something that he saw somewhere, and it's got good news in it that this is, this is actually gospel, and baptism actually does something for you. So the people have just heard Baptism is something I've got to do, and here we get this faint glimmer of hope that actually God does something through the waters of baptism. And it's confusing. And it's confusing. Yeah. I would agree with you. And what's interesting to me is the way that he has—you are correct, but, but the effect of what he's saying is that there are two separate things going on here, right? The actual— death and the actual resurrection has already occurred when you got saved. But now there's this extra deal that is simply um, a kind of ritual you go through symbolically to announce that that's what happened some time ago. But the language of the text doesn't permit that, even in the message translation. In the message translation, and in every other translation, it says that this is what baptism does. And this has got to be confusing. I agree. But this is, 
this time we're going to go to the beach. We're going to meet at Johnny Mercer's Pier. We want to, we're going to come together. We'll have bullhorns and we'll have some music and that we'll be able to introduce you and introduce you to your family, the, your family of believers who were there celebrating with you and everyone who can hear on the beach. It's always cool to see people, they'll gather around as we do baptisms to look and see. Kids will paddle out their paddle boards, their, their little boogie boards out there to, to watch. And people will walk up and want to know what we're doing. And uh, it's just an incredible time. So then when it comes time, I and Ed, some of the, those who will be helping me in the water, will be out in the water and we'll be at a, a good safe. We're not going to bring you up to here in the water. We'll, we'll bring you up to a place where we can baptize you into a wave. That, that shouldn't be scary at all. We're going we're gonna to guide you the whole way. So somebody will bring you out into the, to the water. We'll take your hand and we'll, I'll talk with you briefly. It's about if you made the decision to follow Jesus. And then I'll give you the instructions again. If you, you take your hand and you put it on your nose, and then you grab the wrist of the other hand. So you grab the nose of this, and you grab the wrist like this. That gives us something to hang on to. And then we'll tell you, uh, we'll turn you facing the beach so everyone can see. And then we'll time it with the waves. I've done it a bunch of times. And uh, it was a, today it's our honor to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Take a breath. And when you take that breath, we'll take you into the wave and we'll pick you right back up. And it represents, you don't stay in the tomb very long. We baptize you into the wave and we bring you right back up, representing dying to the old self, the old way of life and rising anew with Christ. And everyone on the beach, whether they amen in a sermon or not, they cheer, they celebrate. Why? Because we're all representing this fact of this is like heaven. We want to be like heaven and we celebrate and we cheer because you have taken that next step. And that's what we're about here at Rock Church, about taking the next step in your walk with the Lord. Baptism. It's one of the most powerful symbolic things that we do in our faith, aligning us with the price Jesus paid. And so when you, when you do that, it's just real simple. You walk out, you're baptized, and you come back in, and people high-five and cheer and celebrate, and then you turn around, and you cheer for the next person that's being baptized. And it's all a part of this process of taking steps to be more like Jesus, more like Jesus. I've surrendered my life to Jesus and been, been forgiven of my sins, which makes me a joint heir with Jesus. And then I take the next step before Jesus went into ministry. The first thing when he did was he went and he was baptized. I was like, what an honor it's like to baptize Jesus. Can you imagine that? Like, you put that on your resume, like you get to speak anywhere. Like the guy who baptized Jesus. But the reality is when when you're baptized, when I baptize you, when, when someone from our team, they baptize you, when they do that, we're baptizing you in the likeness and image of God, saved by Jesus, a joint heir with Christ Jesus. It is a powerful thing as we do that. And it's something I believe everyone should experience in their life. And if you've not been baptized, I wanna ask you to join us. You can take the connection card and say, I wanna be baptized. 
I want information about baptized. You can take it to the next steps in the lobby after service today. Do that, and they'll help you know what you need to do, what, what time you need to show up, where you need to, to be at. They'll help you with, with every step of the way. And if you're like, I, I'm not really sure what happened in my, my past. I, some people say you can be baptized once and that's it. If you were baptized when you didn't make a, a cognizant decision to follow Jesus, then be baptized again. Be baptized again. I don't, I don't see where it says you can only be baptized once. I hadn't, I hadn't read that. Have you read that part? I'm just checking. Make sure I'm right. So I have to clarify next week. I don't see that in there. If, you've, if, if Jesus has saved you and set you free again, then be baptized and celebrate. And we're going to celebrate with you. Amen? Amen, Pastor Bros? No, what is the, the word for not amen? Anathema? Anathema, there you go. That's, that hits it right on the head. This is, so the language is interesting. Take it to the next step, right? It sounds like a used car dealer. Uh, so you've driven, you've, you've, uh, you took the 29 or the, you know, the, the 2009 Subaru for a spin. Um, you ready to take it to the next step? You liked it, didn't you? It's pretty good for you. It smelled good. It smelled like a new car. Feel, feel good in it, driving around, showing your friends. You, you ready to take it to the next step? Talk to our people. We'll get you set up with a finance guy. I mean, this is a sales pitch like nobody's sales pitch. Yeah, and we're even going to the people who've already been baptized and saying, look, you know, uh, I mean, we're, it's, what is it? We're trying to increase the numbers of people that we have baptized, so hurry up and, uh, you know, even if, especially if, if you were baptized before you made this cognitive decision, right? then that applies to you, but even if the Lord's done something good in your life, like, this week, let's let's go do. Let's get baptized because it's important to experience. All the emphasis here is on experience. It's on you doing something for the Lord. Interestingly, from once in a while, he'll say something like, "We baptize you." It's our honor to it's, baptize it's our you. Our honor to baptize. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I was struck at the dissonance between talking about what a powerful symbolic thing this is. And, and how people whoop and holler and high-five. Uh, really? This is what we do f- in the presence of the living God? We whoop and holler and high-five? But, of course, I guess the whole church must operate this way. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. This uh, actually, this is just all spectacle. Going to this high, to, to what, this pier. It must be a well-known pier if that's where they're going. Uh, and people paddling up on their paddle boards. And uh, it, 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 this is almost like the Pharisees praying at the street corner. Well, they have their reward. Yeah. Well, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, this pier is where all the college kids go, i.e. the college girls. So, you know, they're not going to go down to Fort Fisher where it's a bunch of uh, grandmas, they're going to go to Johnny Mercer's pier at Wrightsville Beach, where all the hotties are, 
And uh, I'm because sure because Christianity's cool. Oh yeah. yeah, and I'm sure every guy there's like, hey man, I'll go, I'll go watch the uh, the, the beach bun. I mean the baptism. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you've already defined him as uh, smelling wolfy and uh, looking like a paw. I mean here, I mean it's it's pretty obvious. Here the, here the skin falls off. And, and and the sad thing is he doesn't direct people to the comfort of their baptism. They If they have been baptized, they have already been put to death with Christ. They have already been raised to new life. Their sins are already forgiven. And that proclamation, that proclamation is what creates faith. He's taking away the very means of creating faith. And this is something I absolutely love about the Lutheran understanding of their baptism. When you ask a Lutheran, how do you know you're saved? They point to their baptism. None of these people who get baptized at Johnny Mercer's Pier are going to point to their baptism as being the rationale, or the assurance rather, for why they're saved. They will say, I was saved two weeks prior to it, and I, I got so on board that I even got baptized. Yeah, baptism is uh, ancillary. Absolutely. It's the caboose. All right, well, we'll see how much further we can get with yet another preacher to determine if he is a sheep or a wolf. Yeah. Okay. So if I had to title today's message, my message would be wrestling and running. And the reason why I say that is because when we meet Jacob, Jacob is one of the guys listed who is Jacob? He's the great grandson, or he's the grandson of Abraham. Abraham had gave, there's Abraham and then there's Isaac. Anybody remember Isaac? That whole deal. You thought you had daddy issues. Isaac's daddy took him up on a mountain and said, Hey, bro, we're gonna sacrifice something. Isaac's like, okay, where's the ram? He's like, no ram today, it's you. Come on, how many of you know that's a bad day with a father outing? So Isaac had his issues, he had to work through, but then Isaac he had children, and when, he, when his children were born, he had twins, praise God. He had twins, it was awesome. And so the firstborn son was named Esau, and the secondborn son was named Jacob. And if you have the name Jacob and you're in the room, don't hate me for this, but in the Old Testament, if, the reason he was named Jacob is because back then in Hebrew, the name Jacob literally meant schemer, or would mean liar, it would mean manipulator. It would mean, it's, he's the guy that when you meet him, you feel like he's for you because he's very charming, very charismatic, he's good with his words, but at the same time, you know there's always something in it for him. Have you ever met that person? Don't point at him. <laughs> Some of you, you know, you, the personality's just a little, he's just a little bit always trying to, you know, he's always kind of scheming, he's always a little bit trying to figure something out, trying to figure out how he can make things work to his advantage. So much so that on the day that he is being born, he's a twin, right? Esau comes out first, and Jacob's always, you know, always trying to get something out of a situation. He actually grabs onto his brother Esau's leg, and when Esau is born, Jacob takes his brother's ride and rolls right out, come on somebody, holding on to his brother's foot. He didn't even work for his own delivery. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that in the Bible, that that's what, that's how, that's how this guy is? So he's always seems to be, see, he wanted to be the firstborn, because back then, if you were the firstborn child, 
You were the one that carried the family legacy. You were the one that carried the family name. It was an honor to be the firstborn of, uh, and to carry the lineage, and you would be the one that would, that would basically move the family into the next generation, and there was a great inheritance that you would get and a great blessing to be the firstborn in this time. And so Jacob is all the, all the way from the beginning of his life, he's trying to, he's, he's, he's trying to, He's really, he's not sure who he is, but he's always chasing after something that he doesn't have. Now help me with this, Pastor Bros. This drives me batty, completely Lulu batty. When we take Jacob's name, which I was under the understanding it was heel grabber. That's right. Instead of liar. But we take his name. And as this guy's doing, he's going back to when Jacob was in utero, and we are going to give a full psychoanalysis of this patriarch as a result of his name. I just cannot stand that. I hear guys do it all the time with Jacob, and they start with his name and then everything else that follows fits it's, into his name it's through that lens right. of him being a deceiver manipulator liar and yeah. and you've got to set it up that way in order for in order to get the punch that you're after right right and and this of course doesn't take account of what the scriptures say about Jacob that that uh, Jacob have I loved Esau have I hated that all along, uh, in spite of, and of course, we don't know, this is another interesting thing, we don't know how much Jacob knew about about God's divine plan. Uh, did he know that he was the child of promise, that the promise would come through him? We, we're not 100% sure. We assume, because it's he and his mother, when the father wants to deviate from the promise, who go in and, and arrest it for him. In that case, there's no deception at all. It's simply taking in faith what the promise is. And when the father wants to disobey, mom and son keep him from doing so. Interesting. They use like deception that. in order to do so. Right. But yet it's it's to keep him faithful. Mm-hmm. But see, if you if everything that Jacob does is viewed through the lens of he's a liar, deceiver, manipulator, and tries to get things that he doesn't have or whatever this Yahoo just got through saying, then that is seen, the blessing of Esau, the deception, all of that is seen as uh, nefarious. Right, and that heaven can be won this way. Let's let him spin out a little more. Oh, he's spinning out. So Jacob is in this situation. But what happens is later, Jacob wants the firstborn blessing so much that what he actually is willing to do is he had an older brother. And his father, you know Esau, is his older brother, his twin brother. And his father loved Esau. So Isaac loved Esau because Esau was a manly man. Come on, anybody remember tool time? (laughs) That was... That was, you know, that was Esau. Esau, the Bible even says that he was a, a hunter and a gatherer, that he was the kind of person that he was, he was hairy, he didn't shave, he had a beard, he had, and, and, and Jacob was a mama's boy, and I ain't got nothing wrong with the mama's boys. Where are the mama's boys at that house? Come on, anybody gonna say amen? It'll be honest. Five of us, I'm a, come on, I love my mama. I'm, you know, it, but, 
he was the mama's boy. He kind of clinged to mama, and he was more at home. And, and you know, he, he tried to trick his brother out of his birthright by, by cooking a meal and taking it out. And there's all kinds of stories in the Bible. The Bible's not boring. The Bible's full of interesting things. But as the father is on his deathbed, he comes up with a plan, another scheme, another art of manipulation and deception. And him and his mother, they plot and they say, you know, you're mama's boy and you really deserve the blessing and I want you to get the blessing from your father of the firstborn. So they literally make a costume because Esau is hairy and big. They go and they actually get, they get hair from a goat and they actually create a little Chewbacca outfit, come on. And they send him in. I mean, you know, when I read my Bible, I gotta use my imagination, you know? And, and, and they send him in with this hairy outfit looking like Chewbacca going in. And his father is blind almost from sitting so long. And as he's sitting there, his father calls for his son and he says, what's your name? And he says, my name is Esau. See, Jacob, when he's asked what is his name, he doesn't really know his identity. And there's a danger in missing our identity. And so he fakes out his father and he holds out his arm because his father says let me feel your let me feel your arm and his father reaches out and he feels the hair on his arm and then he gives on his deathbed in his dying days he gives Esau's birthright and Esau's blessing he speaks it over Jacob because he was manipulated yeah, so you, you do this whole identity thing this ties us back to where we've already come from like for the Lutheran, our identity is tied to our baptism. Which is tied to our election in eternity, which we only know through our baptism. And here, clearly, Jacob is... Now, now to me, the narrative is in, in Genesis is clear. Jacob has made a mistake. Jacob has sinned. He's not trusted... He's like the guy who says, I believe, help thou my unbelief. He knows what the promise is. And here's what the promise is. This is Genesis 25, uh, verse 23. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. There's the promise. That's the promise. And so this was attached to Jacob uh, throughout his life. So he believes it, but in a... In a very interesting way, he doesn't believe that looking at the circumstances of his life, that the Lord is going to make it happen. So he buys his birthright from his brother, well, or his brother sells it to him. And I would say, this is a recurring theme when, how in the world is the promise going to be fulfilled? It doesn't look like it's going to happen. Everywhere, yeah, with, with all is, of the patriarchs. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And with the history of Israel. And the thing here is that in spite of human sin... In spite of clear deception, clear um, misuse of the Eighth Commandment, clear misuse of the Seventh Commandment, which haven't even been given yet, but are still in God's holy law. In spite of all of this, the Lord in whose hands control of this entire thing is, the Lord still makes it happen, still makes the promise attached to Jacob. Sure. What you meant for evil, the Lord meant for good. Right, with Joseph. And it was happening right here with Jacob. I mean, to, but to think that he is... Like he's got an identity issue? Yeah, got an identity issue, and I don't know. It just, you are using this to somehow or another 
do that pop psychology thing again. Right. How easily he shifted over to that. See, Jacob's identity was that he always was trying to get things done by his own power. He was always trying to design his own plan. He always had some idea of how he was going to get there. And it was never, he never stopped to consider the way of God. He never stopped to consider the word of God. He would lie. He would deceive. He would cheat. But when you fake out your identity, let me tell you something to, to every person in this room, especially young people, if you're listening to me, if you can hear my voice, whether online or in this room, there's a danger in not knowing your identity. There's a danger when people say, what is your name? And you say, well, what do you want me to be? Because there's a big difference between who you want the world to think you are and who you think the world needs you to be and the person that God has called you to be. And I'm telling you, we need a church that's unashamed that when we're asked, what is our name? We're not gonna say, well, whatever will get me the promotion. When we're asked, what is our name? We won't say, well, whatever's gonna get me, you know, the most return on my investment, whatever's gonna get me further ahead, but instead we know the name that God has given us. And I'm about to read to you in Genesis chapter 32 that God never intended for Jacob to be a schemer and a manipulator and a liar because when he was doing those things, we're not, op we're not operating and he was not operating by faith, he was operating out of fear. What if I don't get blessed like Esau? Why do they always get the promotion? Why, do they, why does it seem like their marriage is great? And it, why does it always seem like the grass is greener on the other side? And when we get in that mindset, we don't operate by faith saying, I believe what God put in my hand is what I'm called to, to work. I'll work whatever he gave me. I'll work on my marriage. I'll work on my career. I'll work on my calling. Sometimes we look at people on stage in church and we think if I had the talent like them, if I could just do what they did. You don't know the price that they paid to get where they stand. Can I get a good amen in here if you believe me today? Yeah, you know, I have had enough. Uh, I think we've uh, thoroughly, uh, I mean, we could go on with this guy because he does go on, and the reason I pulled it is because he says some really crazy things. But if it looks like a wolf, and if it smells like a wolf, and if it howls like a wolf, then by golly, this is a wolf here. Did you notice how he's not reading the text, though? Right, he's telling the story uh, the way that he wants to tell the story. Right. That's true, uh, number one. Um, Which is very wolf-like, by the way. It, it is. And he takes a sort of an incidental point in the text and spins it into a major, major pop psych message. Yeah, your identity. Right, know who you are. And actually, that's not even what he's talking about. What he's talking about in that whole business is keeping the second table of the law. I, 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 just, I don't... He's a mess. I I would love to do an archaeology of the guy's mind. <laughs> but if you're a parishioner in this particular church and you're listening to this, what would be your advice? Run away. Run like hell. And run where? To a Missouri Synod Church or a Wisconsin Synod Church or an Evangelical Lutheran Synod Church. Get to a Lutheran church where the pastors bind themselves to the words of Scripture and... Uh, rightly divide the word of truth and uh, use the word of truth as it has been given, as, as profitable for instruction and for reproof and for correction and training in righteousness. But, but what he, he's doing is he's simply prepping you to, what, live your best life now. Right. 
Right. Well, there's the music queued up for us, and uh, that means that you have come to the end of another episode of the Pluck Chicken Podcast, and so we will pick it up right here the next time. Thank you very much, Pastor Bruss. Thank you. You've been listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kearns. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or St. John LCMS Topeka.org.